Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, correspondent Jonah Desno and I discuss the rights and care needed for film festival volunteers and seasonal employees after the recent controversial layoffs at Rotterdam International Film Festival. Then I reveal Gore's Glory, Tom Crotchet's recommendation. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I share the news that I filed an LLC for real print. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Thank you for coming to today's Real Print, Jonah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eddie. Today, we'll be discussing what's happening in the festival circuit, not necessarily with movies playing like at Venice or Cannes or Tribeca, but more with the working conditions that makes the festivals festivals. Absolutely. A deep dive behind the scenes. Mm hmm one of the most notable cases that's been happening with the film festival circuits has been the Rotterdam International Film Festival, where they've announced that they will lay off a lot of programmers like Julian Ross. And it's such a disheartening news to hear because Rotterdam is such a huge festival that overlaps with Sundance, which is housed more power internationally than with Americans, but uh, it is on. It's sad to hear how there is so much values that people say about progress, but then you giving uh, poor working conditions to the people that make the festivals. Absolutely, we're in a very pivotal time right now with the industry itself, and then obviously with festivals and distribution. Um, Coming in after the pandemic, we knew that there would be a shakeup, especially when you saw the switch to digital and online. Um, and I think everyone held their breath and crossed their fingers um, in hopes that a bounce back would be a bit stronger than it is. And then when we do see this, we, we see that cutbacks are still going in. Um, for how long, we aren't sure. We're hoping not forever. Um, and then that's only escalating to those working conditions um, that we're seeing of just incredible things where uh, programmers and people that are seasonal are going into debt or not being able to afford travel just to work one festival. Um, so we really are in an interesting spot just to kind of see what the evolution of the festival um, premise is gonna be. And a big root of that comes from its workforce and its disappearing workforce. Um, even though it's jobs that people desperately, desperately want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as we said, that COVID has a huge impact on many sectors of the world. Um, in 2020, the budget for Rotterdam was $9.8 million, a million years. And then for this upcoming 2023 fest is $7.8 million dollars and like the absence of ticket sales when you have virtual editions really hurts like the overall um viability of these festivals and uh, 
it really affects everyone from the top programmers to the ushers and even when the festivals try to get job descriptions like they don't really say exactly what you do or say that you need to do other things like having specific experience in softwares while your job is at a desk. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of this pushback um, kind of shared through social media now. There's multiple Instagram accounts where people who are working in this industry have kind of banded together to kind of share their stories, many anonymous. Um, so getting these stories are firsthand experiences that kind of provide insight to the complications uh, between the staffs, the people running the festivals, and then obviously the industries um, and the creators that they're getting the films for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Instagram accounts that Jonah's referring to are Fast Staff, Fast Staffer Stories, and Off the Fest Circuit, where you should read many of these testimonies, where we hope to see a better ongoing and unified festival where everyone can join, not just the guests or the higher level people. And we do have to realize that many programmers have to take years to get into where they are, where they have to try and go through the ranks where they will have many years of low pay and overwork before getting to where they're at. Which is very scary because the job security for that is not what you believe it to be, um, to go through all those years of hard work to finally get this job that you would think would be secure with an institution institution that is more secure than just banking on one film or one artist. Um, but we're seeing those layoffs come in. And there's the fear that more and more of those are going to come in. If festivals kind of switch to a streaming model, um, it, it's interesting to see what we're going to see, especially when festivals um, so heavily lean into volunteer work opposed to a full staff. Um, it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's concerning, it's jarring. Um, maybe the writing's on the walls, but the film industry and cinema always does tend to overcome obstacles that look like there's not a way for them to overcome. But when it comes to the business side of things with festivals, I think that's a whole new ball game. Um, and I just, I'm hoping for all the people who's dedicated their lives to it, that they're going to be able to get to the other side and more emerging people, um, who want to get into this business that want to curate art, that want to show off new films, that want to give new artists a chance to show their work, um, and bring new content to just the lives of many, that they're going to have those opportunities too, that it's not going to be a desert by the time they finally make their way make their way into it mm -hmm. yeah there's an article that i wanted to share about film festival workers unite by anthony kaufman that's on the ida's documentary magazine which you'll share in the show notes where we have to realize that the the pay miles in many festivals are not sustainable because of the nature of contract work where they're all seasonal it's not just year round and that as Frida Bademosi, I'm sorry if I mispronounced her name, who is the newest artistic director of Outfest says that 
some festivals need to start adopting corporate human resources practices with clear job descriptions and limits on what we can do, do, do and a clear understanding of working hours and tracking hours. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is essential. And you'll want to see that with um, really all jobs, because the way the festivals are is a trajectory for many jobs. Um, I can really only speak for the United States job market um, just from because that is where I'm from um, and I don't have the expertise on other things. But you are seeing this pushback and there's a rise, especially with uh, millennials and Gen Z, that people are leaving positions like this. Um, that they're tired of working the jobs that demand extra hours and you're seeing um, new, like the highest rates of a younger generation quitting jobs and looking for something else. So without these benefits provided with festivals, when it is kind of have merits that aren't what you signed up for, um, you can easily see the pushback there as well. And if you don't have the system built up to protect people um, once they get the job, that's another big red flag for the future of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to just share a little bit about my volunteering experiences like true false as it does really affect to how I'm in this industry as well. Like the festival circuit wise where I've uh, volunteer while just being a student. Like I do understand that there is a difference with like getting to take a while you're studying at a university and having a part-time job. But when right now in this real world where I'm trying to get a real job, I've been fortunate enough to be on screen committee for True False for 2022 and we'll do it for 2023. But I'm aware of the limitations of either getting a free festival pass or $200. And I definitely will take the festival pass because I would love to put in, see the work that I put in and the, the other screeners and programmers that put into this festival. But also I'm aware that this is a trajectory we want to get into as a programmer and we'll have to like put sweat and tears and pray that I will not be homeless, homeless, you know, but it is something that I'm aware of while doing this um, news. Sure, and that's a good mindset to have. I mean, people do it because they love it. People love cinema. People, if you haven't been to festivals, um, you don't know about the community once you're there. Um, I remember my first like big festival was South by Southwest, and I was just, in Candyland, um, just from the films I watched, but just the atmosphere, the electricity of it. So people are there because they love it. They love the experience. They love finding the purpose. Um, festivals are the way that films, it's where the discussion often comes from art. That's where you see these breakthroughs and these careers be made. Um, so it's important for people to feel involved in that. Um, it gives people who aren't in these big time offices or like behind the scenes on a set making the films, a chance to feel a part of it, a part of the history that is being made now in terms of cinema. And it's, it's really unfortunate if we see less and less of that and there's less opportunity for people because it truly is a remarkable feeling to be a part of. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we have to where there has been some labor laws that are trying to make this more safe and also that it could literally be applied for festival volunteers where in a recent December 2021 um, appeals court case ruling in California confirmed that people can readily volunteer for nonprofit organizations without receiving any forms of compensation. In the 2018 case, Woods versus American Film Institute, an AFI film festival volunteers sought compensation for unpaid wages and meal and rest breaks after working four 12 to 14 hour days, but the court rejected the claim on the basis that such a decision will create unforeseen potentially devastating financial implications for art organizations. Exactly, and when people aren't getting that compensation, but have to do that much amount of work, it's just that's not a stable model. Um, you already have to kind of be well off and have the passion to volunteer or take that low of a, of a compensation to do something like that. And that's not a thing that people can afford to do, especially not right now where prices everywhere are going up. Um, it's always the dream and to take the gamble, take the investment in yourself. But when there is no compensation and volunteering is that uh, tedious? How do you ask anyone to do that? And how can we expect people to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we have to be aware how the timeline works for the festival service because many of them do like half a year, like at least starting with the programming before all the way to like the final um, festival days as it's very difficult to spread it out as Abby Sun mentions in that IDA article and that when she was a programmer before she's the current director of arts programs for the IDA, she recalls watching eight features a day sometimes, which means you have to watch films on making dinner or out the corner of your eye or even two films at once just to get all the way through the submission tools. Like we have to understand that the, there are actual human beings trying to literally do their day and there needs to be um, many people to work together, but uh, there needs to be less divides and more opportunities and uh, compromising that makes everyone feel not creatively fulfilled, but also livingly fulfilled. Sure, and it's not like these festival founders and like high ranking coordinators are these billionaires or even like studio heads that are just like twiddling their thumbs and like laughing in a big chair as they rake in all the money. Um, festivals are taking a hit um, due to kind of the masses um, relationship with cinema with the COVID setbacks. Um, it's the foundation that it's currently on that is starting to show its cracks. Um, and I think some of the articles you sh shared with me, I think it's the one from Eric Kahn. Um, yeah, Eric with Robert Trudan. Yeah, um, uh, it kind of has a call for action for its fundraising. It's kind of what this saving grace can be that we, we need more investments into these festivals. We need fundraising. We need people to believe and back up in it just to kind of get it back because it's not just for the festivals itself, it is for the premise, it is for 
the futures of festivals in general. Um, we're on a bit of a tipping point. And like I said before, I like to believe that we'll overcome it. But it, as of the way it is right now, it's, it's hard to imagine that there won't be drastic changes that I think a lot of us will really miss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it does make others question like, is it worth it to even be in this part of the industry where you have the opportunity of exhibiting films and try to show people new innovative works, but uh, there's just a lot of uh, things that go into these people's decisions that make it say yes. Like there are some family members, like my own family members that don't understand what does it mean to be in this film vessel circuit or freelancing even. So it's just, you're thinking about many families, not just the people who are working there. And I do want to mention that as Samara Chadwick, the current executive director of the Flaherty was able to institute a transparency compensation of $25 per hour for all contractors and paid time off and benefits for all employees as as quoted in the IDA article that she has been frank with funders and investing in building up the infrastructure of the organization, which is vital to commitment to equity and the ability to run our programs, sustainability and pay our artists fairly. Today's review, Whore's Glory. I can't review Michael Workman's recommendation, I Love You Dad, right now because that movie is not available for public VOD or theaters, and I'll go back to it once I'm able to see it. And for now, we'll go with Tom Crotchick's recommendation, Horse Glory. I had never heard of this documentary before Tom told me about it. Initially, I was a little hesitant because this film directed by Michael Glauwager, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, has a story that has already been explored many times. It is about prostitution where the audience sees prostitutes expressing their needs, wants, and experiences. The film is divided to three different locations in Bangkok, Thailand, Bardapur, Bangladesh, and Reynosa, Mexico. I was hoping that this is a film that doesn't go too male gazy and show how it is a character driven film instead of being issue based. However, watching the movie, I was happy not to worry about the things I mentioned earlier. Without spoilers, I give it a 3.5 out of 5 stars. The film shows every aspect of the industry from the clubs and outside of the clubs. They show Madame betting on ex-prostitute, discovering the legal areas of this activity such as tolerance zones, and I honestly did not expect that much of a 360 degree snapshot. It also includes the patrons outside the club physically. Though the film can be hard for me to understand the connections made in the dialogue, the visuals help keep the story cohesive. I enjoy seeing how it was about people's lives as is. Some of these thoughts in that sphere tend to sensationalize the lives of prostitutes. It is a film that has kinetic and energy and spiritualness in life. 
I love that the film has no narration. The narration gives a form of judgment to be passed on to the audience when narration is used. The film's verite footage leaves room for open interpretation and shows how Gladwager does not underestimate the audience's intelligence. It is interesting to see the tarot zones and how mundane life is without the glamour or the music that tend to be associated with that scene. There's no spectacle around it and Gladwager showed us the standard unhealthy stuff in the Spectre as well as the beauty that happens in that area. And that's my take. And so we see that this, that this, we see that it's possible. Um, you can't just look at one example and kind of see the pat on the back and just expect it to work everywhere. Um, you almost have to expect some, some losses and some casualties. But I believe that there's enough commitment with the industry that this is truly something that people do care about. Um, most people who are in the festival crowd aren't just someone who's going to just only watch the newest Marvel movie that comes out. It is people that believe in the art. It's people that want to be there. They want to be a part of it. Um, and I think it's essential for it too. Um, looking at Netflix, the that was so based off of an algorithm where net Netflix prices are going down. They're laying people off because they're spending egregious amount of money is based off of what an algorithm says that people want to watch and they're not getting enough people to watch it. Um, where with festivals, you get these curators who are providing to the art form, that are providing to the growth of cinema, that are making the films that people want to come out and see. Um, so it's crucial, not just, it's not just crucial to the industry to keep festivals alive. It's crucial to have people in these roles. Um, for the sake of cinema, and as pretentious as it sounds, for the sake of art cinema, to give those films the opportunity to have the spotlight they deserve, that they're definitely not going to get on their own, just presented as as a piece of meat to um, just mass market consumption. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that in mind, we also want to recognize that in the last couple of years, several art institutions like the Art Institute of Chicago, Anthology Film Archives, Filming Center, and the Portland Museum of Art have been unionizing so that there could be a lot of better working conditions, long terms, and be contentious with boards and executive directors. And uh, that it's just that even just speaking in America, which is where I'm at, you just see that there is a neglect of the arts and not necessarily seeing the importance of uh, having the money for giving out money to art spaces and the people that run the show. Yeah, you're, you're right with that. And like I said, times are changing. Um, Times are changing, the industry's changing, um, and 
things have the possibility to be better than they've ever been before, especially with distribution and the diverse, um, a diversity of the people involved with, with the arts, with the industry and the many facets of it. Um, but the alternative is also true, where we see less and less of these films break out, where we see these festivals not being able to get the support they need. And it, and the art goes in the shadows for a little bit. Um, it goes even more underground than it already can be perceived to be. And we shouldn't want that. We shouldn't let ourselves let that happen. Um, and obviously it's not like everyone who wants to support it and just has the money just to throw into these infrastructures to keep them afloat, to keep them strong. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, you, you got, it's, it's one of those complicated things where you almost have to sit by and just hope for the best. Um, but support, if you can support these things, support the films that you wanna watch, support the festivals that have the films that you care for, that you believe in. Mm -hmm. And with enough, enough talk, we will see these change. And I think a lot of it will rely on kind of changes in other markets and other industries, um, especially with unionization, just to see momentum um, in political landscapes. But the potential for that's there. The potential for, for all of this is there. Yeah, I do hope that there could be um, better solutions, especially with housing that's very hard for some out-of-town volunteers where they have to trust in living well with people they don't know. And also I worry about the virtual components of festivals where like when, like with Sundance, for example, when they have to shut down all the in-person components, it really strands all the volunteers that were gonna to plan to travel there and then the sick time pay use that with COVID, like it's just very crazy on how to apply it with the virtual components or there still needs to have that infrastructure when you can't do it in person. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's, if that's not gonna be there, like if you aren't gonna have these in-person festivals, you just, you gotta, with the, it's so tough. It's so tough because we're just at a precedent. It's something we haven't seen before. Um, but you still want these jobs to be there. You want that quality to be there. Just because something's online does not mean it has to have that enthusiasm towards it. But like I mentioned before, when you are there in person, there is that bit of electricity that you don't get um, just online. But if there's anything like theaters, you see that the theaters that have been able that that stay around there still is the desire for that communal experience um so if things do go to the direction of line hopefully we see that breakthrough where that is captured in a way um that i don't think it currently is at mm -hmm. yeah i really hope for the solutions as you mentioned and i feel like that's a good wrapping point in this talk and please follow Fest staff, Fest, um, the account off the Fest circuit and Fest staffer stories to hear more about all these hard working conditions and what the, the volunteers have to go through. And please read 
the the IndieWire article, why the film industry isn't doing enough to support programmers, and the uh, IDA article, Film Festival Workers Unite. And thank you for coming to today's talk, Jonah. Thanks for having me, Eddie. Um, let's stay optimistic. Today's concluding thought, filing an LLC. We have an exciting thing to share with you. My producer, Anish, my brother Alex, and I have filed an LLC for this venture, Real Print. Our LLC name is Zoltaba Media LLC. It'll be us if you asked Anish about the name. He made it up. My brother and Anish also have some works like the sports podcast, Pitch Route and Flare Cut that is under Zoltaba Media. This action will make us protect and own the copyrights for Real Print, Pitch Route, Flare Cut, and other works in our collective. We had some long-term discussions about filing an LLC. We needed to know what we are entailing. Once we do that, we need to read all the do's and don'ts once you have an LLC. We also need to find a state for the LLC's location and a registered agent from that state. I talked with Alex and Anish about filing an LLC because you will have more opportunities with funding when you have an LLC attached to a fiscal sponsorship from a nonprofit organization. Not many notable grant funding opportunities exist for individuals to work on a podcast. It was also essential to let them know that this is not just for real print, but for their other works too. Finally, it was vital to see this move as a business. I want to build a future of expanding our brand instead of as a hobby for fun. I hope this can be a full-time job where I do not have to freelance as much or still not be on the job hunt. After exploring all the best and worst scenarios with an LLC and the legalities of it, we officially filed it. We decided to do it in Delaware because we have a mutual friend with LLC experience and recommended that we do it in Delaware due to the state's lower costs than in an expensive New York. Now we all need to wait. It takes time for everything to be official. There's a lot of waiting to obtain the formation documents, proper certificates, and EIN. Once we have all that, I will reach out to a few film nonprofit orgs that may fit our vision for fiscal sponsorship. After that, we will soon get a bank account for the LLC because I need to save for the money for Zoltaba Media. I can't have it mixed up with my personal money and there will be many more unforeseeable steps after the bank account formation that will help us make Real Print and Zoltaba Media more established and concrete. And that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, Like Clockwork by Benjamin Kling, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds, 
This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.